You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. Previously on The Burn Scar. Ariel's mom, Vicky, attends a green building expo and has a vision for how to design a net zero house. She wants to reduce her carbon footprint so urban wildfires are less likely in the future. But Ariel realizes building green isn't so easy for some of their neighbors. The city of Louisville passed some very strict green building codes just weeks before the Marshall Fire blazed through. Now, the city council is rolling those back to give victims a break. Later, Vicky signs up to help revise the Enclave's neighborhood covenants, but they get pushback from neighbors who don't think that this is the time to try to impose rules. And Ariel explains to Vicky how the covenants could be seen as unwelcoming. With all that hanging over them, Ariel and Vicky have a heart-to-heart and realize that this new house could provide a green path forward by building a multi-generational home. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is The Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. Producer Ariel Lavery picks it up from here. Okay, now we're all going to open these yes. at once. All right. And you're recording this moment, so it must be Five days short of the one-year anniversary of the fire, my family opens Christmas presents in my parents' mountain house. My girls and husband, my parents, Katie and her partner, Becca. I had transported a very special gift for everyone. How mysterious. Yeah, good luck. Wow, it looks like photo albums. These are all old photos, so somehow all of these survived, right? Yeah, because I'm a hoarder. You had them? Of things. I didn't even know that. The photos I took with me when I left home. Some of these, I don't even recognize where we are. I've been toting them around the country with me 
for decades. You can see boy Katie. Yeah. <laughs> and Kevin. Katie and I should make Kevin. a copy of that for Amy. They are. <laughs> That's really cute. <laughs> That's the, one of the best ones of Andrew, I think. That's when we were at the sand dunes. Yeah, he looks so happy. This is, I think, Andrew. Yeah, I think you're right. That must have been just like minutes after he was born. Probably was. When I first looked at them after the fire, it was hard to imagine not having these. Yeah, I think you're right. When there's no record to remind you of a memory you had, it kind of dissolves. So there's Grandma and Grandpa, Mom. Here's one with Grandma and Grandpa in it. And you. Yeah, three generations. Our house. That is our house. That's where the piano used to be. Yeah. You start to forget the details. Oh, those are wonderful. I'm so glad that you have these. I know. I was like, when that happened, I was like, man, it is a good thing that I am a hoarder and uber sentimental. Uh A lot of these I don't remember. I oh my God! These. This is my best friend, Kevin Austin. Oh. You forget how safe you felt, blind to the possibility of disaster. Today, even while being transported back in time, we're all aware of the looming threat of living here. Most of all, Mom which I know when she gives little warnings, like this. Don't leave the photos here, she says. This house could burn, too. Mountain homes are in even greater danger than homes on the front range. Since the Marshall Fire, what to do with this house has become a more pressing issue. As Dad continues to decline, they haven't been able to spend time up here without help. And there's been so much financial paperwork for Mom, she's barely had time to think about this house, let alone live in it. The Mountain House has served as a great family gathering place. Even before the Marshall Fire, we were spending Christmases up here. So the thought of not having this place to gather is painful for all of us. But if we really want to be responsible for our actions against climate change, we shouldn't even have a second home. Mom is conflicted because, in other parts of her life, she's doing whatever she can to stay green. And had it not been for Dad's constant medical needs, they would have lived up here after the fire. And one of the things is thinking maybe we should sell this house and just live in Louisville. But it's so nice to be up here. Well, there is this carbon footprint you leave every time you go back and forth between the mountains and Louisville. There is. You're right. Do you think about that? I do think about that. That's why I want to get an electric car. (laughs) And the other thing is, I think, well, one of these days, what if Louisville is like an average temperature of 80 year-round instead of whatever it is, probably around 60? Yeah. This will be a nice place to retreat to. Having two big houses like this is probably indulgent. Yeah. And I haven't really come to terms yet what to do about that. Yeah. I think that's something I want to talk with the whole family. Perhaps Mom's inner conflict represents some generational privilege that she's just starting to see. 
She does want what's best for the planet. But it's hard if that means giving up the comforts she's worked for her whole life. She wants to keep providing something for her kids, but what if that something is coming at greater financial and environmental cost? I've had these thoughts on my mind since our conversation about creating a multi-generational home. If I do move my family back into the Enclave, I'll be face to face with the conflict between what we say we want for the planet and how we're really living. Because, as I've come to find out, Louisville is not doing everything it can to foster a green community. My sister Katie and I have a lot of heart-to-hearts over this holiday, the one-year anniversary. She likes the idea of my family moving into the new house. She recognizes that Mom will probably need the help. She's also felt the disconnect between what people in Louisville say they want and how they live. I think parts of me reject it now, like I don't seek out suburbia for my future, but which the entirety of Louisville is one big suburb, I would say. I ask her what she thinks about Mom's decision to rebuild a big, expensive house on a fire-prone lot. I think it's still a good idea, especially since they're considering fire prevention in this new build. And also, I think Mom, I just think a project is good for her. A project is a requirement for Mom. She's told me time and again that having the new house to look forward to keeps her optimistic amidst the daily tasks of caretaking and managing the financial situation. And she hasn't just decided to rebuild. She's decided to try to eliminate everything in her life that relies on fossil fuels. She's building to the net zero 2021 codes. The house will be getting solar panels installed on the roof. And she's doing all this despite the fact that the insurance payout doesn't cover these costs. I think she sees this rebuild as a major opportunity to contribute to the fight against climate change. So it's been a juggling act of moving money around, liquidating some accounts, applying for grants, and borrowing against the mountain house. But she's really committed to doing this. And, in typical mom fashion... She really likes nerding out on this new life project. If you don't mind, Ariel is actually a podcast producer. And she's yeah, are you oh, okay hi. with me recording this? Oh, sure. I've been re- yeah, NPR's been yeah. out okay. here. So, yeah, come on. After Christmas, my mom organizes a tour for us with someone who is a force in the green living movement. Stuart Cummings. He helped found Go Electric Colorado, a consulting organization for homeowners wanting to transition to fully electric homes. And he loves giving people tours of his little retrofitted boulder house. And then also high winds. These are hurricane, you know, 140 mile an hour hurricane rated fire. How windy does it get here? Well, the Marshall Fire, they clocked it at 116 at NCAR. Yeah. We had like, oh, about 105. 
5110 right here. So okay. NCAR's wow. right there. He's also pretty knowledgeable about fire protection. Class A. Have you just been doing all that research yourself? Or you yeah, I mean, it's anybody? pretty, there's a huge body of research. If you look at all the California fires, there's yeah. volumes. And then the Marshall fires just trove. He's been slowly transitioning his 1960s Boulder home for years from an inefficient, gas-heated, drafty house to a fully insulated and enclosed home envelope. That's a technical term that means the house doesn't let any air in or out through windows or walls. On average, we use, we're using about 27, maximally 33% of the energy we used to use. This tour gets very technical as he brings us first into the garage, where he shows us ductwork that leads from the outside wall to the interior of the house. He explains that this airtight home relies on a controlled system of air intake through this ductwork, because the home doesn't get any outside air leaking in anywhere else. And the air that comes in gets filtered. The air is really toxic because you've incinerated PVC and all kinds of stuff, we can uh, put like a MERV-15 filter in here. So this MERV-13 is a standard high filtration that takes all the smoke out. If we go to MERV-15, it takes everything. That's like hospital. It's basically a hospital filter. So this is a really neat unit. It's US made. It's just a simple piece of sheet metal. The rest of the house is heated and cooled by mini splits, which are wall or ceiling mounted units that don't use any ductwork, but rather an outside compressor in order to heat and cool. So here's one of the mini split heads. This is what they look like. And, um, and there's one. Doing this tour gets me pumped up about the possibilities of electric homes in our future. Things are getting cheaper as more people build and install electric heating and cooling systems. And you can do it yourself. What if we could retrofit our old Kentucky home this way? Maybe we could achieve our own electric home without moving into mom's. Then Stu starts getting a little philosophical. Super inefficient, yeah. high cost, it's impoverishing the rural, you know, yeah. fuel, fossil fuel, be it cars or home heating, it's really impoverishing. The whole energy system we have in the United States is impoverishing. Fossil fuels? help keep poor people poor. Monthly heating costs are so high in some areas that people have no way to save and invest in something better. So just because this technology is available doesn't mean it's accessible. Because people are struggling just to pay for the energy costs they have. And a huge challenge with weatherizing, you know, the, you know, a lot of rural poverty, a lot of really poorly built homes. There's a lot of housing stock that you're better off tearing it down. Yeah. You know, the good news is they're coming a long way with uh, manufactured homes and uh, 3D printed homes are the latest and greatest things. If our country just put a, f a little bit of money into that, we could house everybody in really high quality. We're going to have to build new housing, a lot of it, yeah. you know, just to house the homeless. But then there's just so much waste in the United States. Then it's almost like he reads my mind. You know, in the United States, we just have countless second homes, unoccupied homes, unoccupied properties. Unoccupied homes like the one we just left. I study mom's face when Stu starts saying this, looking for some recognition. But I don't think she can give that in this moment. I don't say anything either. But I remember her defending her decision to rebuild when we talked earlier. To the people who are rebuilding from the fire, I mean, everybody is pretty much gung-ho. They're all saying, yeah, this is the right thing to do, and I, I believe it too. 
Louisville really does need people to rebuild to keep the local economy growing. And these updated homes will be providing more carbon-free housing stock, especially those built to the 2021 codes. But there is still the fire factor that's really on my mind. Even on this tour, I'm getting a clearer picture of what living in a fire-prone environment means. And do you ever just, like, open the window instead? I occasionally, my wife criticizes me for this. <laughs> yeah, she, Laura's very tolerant because it's just such geeky stuff. So, no, we try to run the house. You know, in the passive house world, you, like, never open a window. Because yeah. you're, you're violating the air envelope. And it's kind of hard for your I'm realizing we'll never live in a house like the one I grew up in. I'll never be that blissfully ignorant again. Side of the house, you can see I got a rolling shutter on that window. Mm-hmm. It's down oh, almost yeah. all winter. And even the big one in the back, there's a hand crank. And that, that only goes down for high winds or fires. really enjoyed learning alongside mom all about how to electrify one's life, prepare for a carbon-free future. But sometimes all these geeky new tech solutions to our climate problems seem like we might be jumping the gun on some simpler solutions. Something I've become more aware of since the fire is the climate impact of affluence. In 2022, a research project at UC Berkeley maps out the entire country's carbon footprint, neighborhood by neighborhood. And guess what? Louisville is not in the blue. Not even close. In fact, my poorer Kentucky neighborhood is much greener. Probably because people can't afford to fly around the world and buy lots of stuff all the time. And people who live in Murray mostly work in Murray. So even though my Kentucky community is much more conservative, it's contributing less carbon to the atmosphere. When Katie and I talk about this kind of stuff, we almost always agree on the kind of communities we want to live in. Locally sustainable communities. It's not just heat pumps and mini splits and whole house fans, but it's kind of... It's, it's um, socioeconomically sustainable as well as biophysically sustainable. And when we think about what Louisville is, it's not really lining up yet. Before the fire, Louisville was trying to be proactive against climate change by requiring new building to go net zero. And as we all learned, that can be extremely expensive. So Louisville effectively priced out any middle and low income earners. But there could be other ways Louisville could welcome people. For one thing, they could encourage more multi-generational living, like what Mom and I are thinking about doing. When we first started talking about moving in together, I asked her if she'd seen any house plans that have something like a mother-in-law apartment. But she tells me that she's learned that they aren't allowed by city codes. I can't wrap my head around this, but... Maybe Lisa Ritchie knows more about where this came from. Lisa, you'll remember, was the interim director of planning and safety when the Marshall Fire hit. That's a great question. Personally, I'm very supportive of these alternative housing, you know, types. I think 
this one size fits all a single family home for every family and is not it's expensive it's not needed Louisville is actually one of the few communities in at least in Boulder County that doesn't allow what we call accessory dwelling units or ADUs for short I probably get, you know, a call or two a month from a family inquiring if this is allowed. So I definitely think that there's a lot of folks thinking about how this could be beneficial. After the Marshall Fire, um, now that we've kind of gotten our feet under us, City Council has asked us to have a discussion on ADUs. This part of our work plan to, for 2023 is to discuss the whole ADUs and affordable housing and all of that. Deb Fahey, our neighbor and city council member, is also in favor of allowing ADUs in Louisville. She's seen it help young people in neighboring communities. This is a young couple. They don't have any kids yet. And, and they're living in the ADU and renting out the house. And because of that, the rent is paying their mortgage. And allowing ADUs wouldn't just allow for more young people to come in. When you're older, there comes a time when you might need a little assistance Mm -hmm. in your day-to-day life, you know, with the cooking or the shopping or or driving, transportation, whatever it is. It would be really nice to just have a caregiver living in an ADU or have one of your kids move home and take care of you just in that little way that you need it. Because hiring in-home care is very expensive. Mom wants to build an ADA-compliant home where she can age in place. Lots of people who are rebuilding are doing this. Having an extra apartment in the house would make it possible for Mom to hire some live-in help if she needs it. Or it could just make it easier for a multi-generational home to function. Because, let's be honest, moving your husband and kids into your parents' house comes with some difficulties. So have you had data curiosity conversations with any of your kids about potentially coming back? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's a long shot. Everyone I talk with about the ADU restriction seems in favor of allowing them. Our neighbor, Amy Austin, is also thinking about aging in place. And she really wants her kids to be able to come back to the front range for good. We call them special renters. They don't like to be pressured, but I was like, oh, look at what's available to special renters. Also the hot tub in the backyard. (laughs) But there's concern among some Louisvillians that allowing extra separate living spaces would change the character of Louisville. It could start to look more like Lafayette, the less affluent city to the east. Some people worry that ugly shacks would pop up in people's backyards, off-street parking would become congested, or strange people would move into their neighborhoods. And as far as, you know, like, a perfect stranger moving in, I'm like, well, first of all, your children are perfect strangers to me. You're a perfect stranger to me. I did some research on this um, through AARP, who is really big on this being something that's very good for seniors, very good for communities, very good for the environment. Um, Some of the things that they pointed out is like the average size of a home has like tripled since like the 50s. So like the average home was like 900 square feet. Now it's 2,300 square feet. But the average number of people living in the house has actually gone down. 
Amy has been actively advocating for allowances to extra living spaces. She's spoken at city council about it. They've been getting feedback since the Marshall Fire from the public on the issue, but haven't yet made a decision one way or another. Amy spoke in August of 2022 during a public comment period. As you know, approximately 92% of the Marshall Fire victims are underinsured. Allowing ADUs could give these families a source of revenue to help overcome the financial difficulties that are caused by the fire and the lack of funding by insurance companies and the government. Louisville also has very little affordable housing. ADUs often provide housing at a lower cost than apartments, especially apartments that are owned by large investors. ADUs keep the investment in our community. The young people in our community cannot afford to buy housing anywhere on the front range and due to high rent cannot save enough even for a down payment. Family ADUs offer an opportunity for reduced rent so that this generation can make progress towards home ownership. If I know mom, when she moves into this new house, she's never going to want to go back to a senior living facility. Having an extra living space would help her stay and would help house more people in less space. If the ADU restriction all comes down to the character of the community, maybe Louisvillians should look at what's already happening. Because this fire is already changing the types of homes that are here. Homes are being rebuilt to accommodate for an older and more wealthy population. In fact, most of the homes that are being built are larger than the homes that burned. The house that mom is looking to rebuild is 800 square feet larger than the one I grew up in. So my biggest question is, in a world where more people are being displaced and the cost of living is going up, how can Louisville make it easier for people to live here? Investing in better technology and bigger houses doesn't solve this dilemma. My cynicism makes moving back feel like a bad choice. Then I have a conversation that makes me take a deep breath. It's so easy to drop into a depression over what's been happening. People don't want to be under this dark cloud. And that's when we come back. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. Us Marshall Fire victims will probably never be able to return to our blissful ignorance about wildfire. Every time I pass a cluttered front-range neighborhood, I can't help but picture how the fire will spread, devouring house after house. Even in Kentucky, whenever I make a fire in our outdoor fire pit, I have a twinge of anxiety and water down the yard around the pit. I've wondered how Louisville will be able to adapt to the new knowledge that this landscape burns. In a historical fire map of Colorado, I see that a lot of the front range is in the red, meaning, historically, fires have been a normal part of this landscape. 
Many communities in the West have taken on new preventative measures to protect themselves against wildfire. Controlled burns are one solution more communities are exploring, but I'm not sure anyone here would be okay with that. People in Louisville are still traumatized. In March of 2022, three months after the Marshall Fire, another human-caused fire broke out in the foothills of Boulder near NCAR, due east of where the Marshall Fire started. Our neighbor Deb told of a moment of PTSD. Um, I was sitting in the living room looking out the window of the condo and could see the smoke from the fire by NCAR that was just over the summer. Yeah, and that was my first thing was, I can't do this again. I mean, the image of that white plume of smoke above Davis and Mesa, when I couldn't see what was going on down below, and the first image I had in my mind was, oh my God, it's happening again. You remember Larry Bovin? the retired volunteer firefighter who joined us in our forensic tour of the Enclave? Since the Marshall Fire, he's been re-elected as treasurer to Louisville's Fire Protection District and become even more involved in creating a firewise Louisville. He's also in his 70s, so the decision to rebuild his home on the Hillside neighborhood wasn't easy. Uh, I, I'm, I'm feeling a lot more hopeful now just because uh, we've... Uh... Actually, we broke ground several months ago. Are you guys building an ADA-compliant home for your wife? Yes, pretty much so. I think a lot of people are thinking aging in place. I wanted it to be for Mary and so that she would feel comfortable. I know I had a lot of intrepidation about the fact that this was going to be a very expensive proposition for us at this juncture in our life. Today, many of our neighbors' rebuilds are well underway. 129 families have moved back into their Louisville homes, and another 277 are on their way. Some of them are rebuilding with flammable materials and less-than-ideal architectural plans for fire mitigation. Some are even surrounding their lots with wood fences, one of the major culprits of the Marshall Fire spread. But when I ask Larry if he's frustrated with this... If he thinks home fire mitigation should be mandated, he surprises me. I'm, I'm of two minds about that. You, you've got to give people a carrot. Individual freedom versus social responsibility. I'm still feeling a bit cynical about the area becoming more expensive with larger designer homes and the city's lack of building mandates for fire protection. But Larry helps reframe things for me. Because it's so easy to drop into a kind of a, a depression over what's been happening. People don't want to be under this, this dark cloud. I look at some of the homes that were sited, the 100-foot perimeters, the thickness of the walls and the inset windows. I don't want to live in a stockade. And that's really what you're talking about in, in a sense. How, how do we come, come together on that and create a culture of fire awareness 
in our community. Do we do that by mandate or do we do that more by education? I would prefer to do it based on education. Larry starts to tell me a different approach to fire protection for our neighborhood. He tells me that Louisville might be able to manage themselves out of danger by simply paying attention to its open spaces. Louisville is, they have a love of their open space. We were so enamored with the idea of having open space that we really didn't look at the open space as what's going to make that open space more resilient, more native, so that it really can handle fire in the future. Louisville has started taking preventative measures to cut back the grasses. They have been doing more mowing around the trail systems. Which doesn't seem like a very green solution, but they've also been experimenting with other really creative strategies, like livestock grazing. We have those cow, we have those goats, you know, up in up in Davis and Mesa for a while. Then they're moving them around to other areas. They've also cleaned out the elaborate ditch system that, before the fire, was full of debris, contributing to the propagation of the fire. And now, Larry thinks those ditches have the potential to act as fire breaks. A fire break, you know, like up on Davis and Mesa, might have been a real plus because it would have given more time for fire trucks, fire equipment to get staged and ready. The city is trying to educate people, too. Organizations have been invited to give presentations on fire prevention. And Larry, himself, is part of a group that's been passing out educational pamphlets that give advice on how to do simple things to mitigate one's house. How how do we come together on that? The idea of talking to your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, creating yeah. that community. Yeah, you're, you're just telling them, okay, why don't you two work it out? And instead of having a wood fence between the, your two houses, you, you just put up some sort of like uh, vinyl or, or a, a wire fence or something. We also need to uh, create a culture of volunteerism and do that in, in a way that really encourages them, gets them out and have them feel like, hey, guess what I did today? I cleaned up this part of the Goodhue ditch, or I cleaned up this part of the Davison ditch. I have to stop here and say that when Larry mentions this idea of the community coming together and investing in themselves, volunteering time to fix their own problem, my cynicism melts away. Here is a man who is part of Mom's generation and one of Mom's neighbors to boot who wants the same thing I do from my community, togetherness and resilience. I haven't been sure their generation is up to the task of making these kinds of social transitions for a green future, but I feel so inspired by his vision that it helps me imagine neighbors coming together to address the issues I've brought up. Honestly, knowing that he will be living just over the hill makes me feel like, yes, moving back into the enclave will be good for my girls and my family. People in this community do have an appetite for coming together to solve things. 
Yet, my inner cynic comes sneaking back. I start thinking about what hasn't happened yet to protect future residents. But a lot of those houses are being built larger than the original ones, closer together, which was another problem that was cited in the facilitated learning analysis. And these, a lot of these houses are like 14 feet apart. Do you see that as a problem? I, I you know, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say, yeah, that's a problem. Because I, I feel strongly and still do that it's not if, but when. My generation is exposed to a lot of doom these days. Katie and I parse out a lot of that in our conversations. I was just contemplating my mortality constantly the last year. Though I think a lot of where I'm at right now definitely came from watching a lot of this stuff go down and these declines and dad. Well, and we, I mean, in some way, we've all experienced a little death with his yeah. house because yeah. it's sort of like, you know, you close the book. Yeah. It's, we're never going to go back there. Mm -hmm. I will say we have a really long way to go. It can get a lot worse in Colorado. And I, I say that coming from California. I mean, I've been doing ag research in a desert for two and a half years. This, the drought is just brutal. Katie received her Master's of Science in Soils and Biochemistry from UC Davis. And when she talks sustainable living models, I listen. Unfortunately, the legislation and the commodity boards and all the industry out there are going to keep things business as usual for as long as they can. The lack of green communities is, requires the need for these fire-safe communities. Katie is just as much of a cynic as me, but she has education about alternative models of sustainable communities that are really appealing and possible. So my view of the way that human civilization is going, so I base a lot of my views around agriculture, and I think one way or another, we are going towards smaller farm futures and more locally sustainable communities, but it's how are we going to get there? Are we going to legislate ourselves there? Or is there going to be a lot of climate change disaster and a lot of tragedy that's going to get us there? There are a lot of really innovative solutions out there. There are a lot of creative solutions that we have that a lot of communities aren't going to explore. And that's for one reason or another. Or because of just like zoning. Sure, but you know, that's zoning's bullshit. Like that's something that we decide, you know, <laughs> yeah. like. We're in a situation that we have to manage ourselves out of. We can't just. We, we're at the table eating. We can't just put our knives down, our forks and knives down and stop. You know, we have, like, it's, it's a runaway train. This is pretty much exactly where I've landed today. I would love to believe that if we let people make their own informed decisions, like Larry would prefer, 
will somehow come out of this climate crisis safe on the other side. Perhaps a little more burned, a little more exhausted, but safe. When I consider mom's situation, I have to consider all the forces at work in her life. Everything after the fire pushed toward rebuilding in the same place, the same single family home model. And though she's more motivated than ever to eliminate her carbon footprint, she still has a lifetime of investments guiding her decisions. The climate implications of having two homes became glaringly clear after the fire. The decisions we make are becoming ever more burdensome. But this is our starting point. We've insulated ourselves and we think we're, we're, it's impermeable. Our defenses are great. We have our houses, our cities, our towns, and I think we've really lost touch with a lot of stuff around us. It's going to be hard for mom to envision a totally different way of living, a way that relies more on neighbors, more on community support, more on reinventing our lives. She's been comfortable in her life for a long time. But dandelions are always having to adapt to survive. The tragedy of the Marshall Fire is changing how my mom sees her generation's role in the climate crisis. And she's learning to be less comfortable. Well, I have to say, you know, just as, I guess, an observer, a child observer of you, is that I've been, uh, I know that you fancy yourself a dandelion, (laughs) and you are, but I've also been really impressed with your flexibility through all of this. Because I know that, like, you know, like you had a lot of comforts. You had a lot of, not just creature comforts, but like a lot of like just your things that you really need, like your bicycles and your this and your that and your, you know, your things that you always needed. And, um, and, and I think all the kids recognize that it's very difficult for you living in the apartment Mm -hmm. and it's a totally different lifestyle. You never imagined yourself living this way when you were 72. Yeah, not really. But that, I've been really impressed with your flexibility to kind of like understand and acquire this new way of living. And I just wonder if that's extending into thinking about other ways of living in, a, in you know, beyond building a green home and stuff, but ways of living greener. Yeah, I think it has somewhat. I mean, I feel like more than ever, it's a good idea to eat simply, eat whole foods, grains, beans, greens. The more you can grow, the better off you are and eat your own stuff. I'm not that interested in going out to fancy restaurants. And yeah, trying to build green and just live simply and not being jetted off to the Canary Islands for a vacation so you can tell all your friends and post it all over Facebook. And, you know, it's a painful process, but I think it's been very transformative and it's kind of changed my outlook. What I think about now is we've got to make things better for our grandkids, for Lumi and Calliope and Elle. We've got to really ensure that they have a decent place to live because otherwise it might be even more horrifying for them. Since I've had children, I've had more and more anxiety about the planet we could be leaving them. There's a quote in one of my favorite podcasts, Threshold, hosted by Amy Martin, 
that describes the position my mom and I find ourselves in especially well. Our biggest barriers and our most promising tools are our imperfect human selves. This quote tells me that as long as climate action is human-led, it will not be perfect. If we move my family back to the Enclave, things will not feel perfect. I will still have the unease about being complicit living in a big house in an upper-class neighborhood that could burn down again. But our family's carbon footprint will overlap with mom's, and we'll certainly cut down on emissions without traveling to and from Kentucky. My girls will get to know their grandmother as a mentor and caretaker, rather than a Christmas-time family member. And I'll be able to help Mom stay in her house. So maybe this is one step toward our sustainable future, and one step toward making this home again. I get to visit the house under construction with my family and kids in the summer of 2023. Katie is in town again with her partner, Becca, which makes this first tour of the place really special. Electric? That's good, because they do plumbing before electrical. Yeah, so. all the plumbing looks like it's in. Yeah, you can plumbing. see where all of the bathrooms and the laundry rooms And once the electrical's done, everything else is going to go fast. As long as no supply chain issues. Yeah, I think that's, that's what true. Slowed down the Austin. Yeah. We've talked a bit about where everyone would sleep. Dad's decline has made it less likely that he'll ever be able to move in without full-time nursing care. So maybe my husband and I would be sleeping in the master bedroom if mom could give that up. Wow, that's huge. And the the it's funny, the master bath is bigger than the office. It is. <laughs> You're right. Uh, yes, it is. And why do we have a, the ADA compliant? Oh, yeah. So these would have been narrower, these doorways? Yeah, they are narrower. Okay. You look at the other ones and see that oh, okay. these are the wide ones. I didn't make the whole house ADA compliant. I didn't think it was really necessary. Really? But what if you end up wanting, what if you end up in one of those bedrooms and then, and then you can't get in? Yeah. <laughs> then you'll have to do that after. Yep, I'll have to, yep. Then I'll say, I guess I made a mistake. <laughs> I made a mistake. I don't belong in this wheelchair. <laughs> That's it. The house is a single-story house that takes up most of the lot. Large windows, very open space with high ceilings. But it's clear to me that this place doesn't resemble my childhood home at all. That feeling I had of familiarity isn't really here anymore. The neighborhood already looks so different. There's still a little room for landscaping. In earlier conversations, Mom was 100% on board with only planting native grasses and flowers, zero-scaping most of the rest. But now she really wants another autumn blaze maple. 
So making concessions to the local ecology is still hard. I wonder what that red bushy thing is up there. Oh, that is, it's called a smoke tree. That's a survivor. And really, our favorite part of the tour is when we see the life coming back. Things are growing outside. There's something flowering right here that looks like something you planted. It does. I think that's a a poppy. Is it? You planted those poppies, huh? Yeah, oh, years ago. Oh, and look, there's some daylilies up there. Oh, yeah. Those daylilies are going to bloom a lot. Great. All right. We have some survivors. Yeah. Next time on The Burn Scar, we're going to share a panel discussion with some of the guests that you've heard this season, including Ariel and her mom, Vicki. A couple weeks before the second anniversary of the Marshall Fire, we assembled an all-star group of folks to discuss urban wildfires in the American West. If you didn't get to attend, now's your chance to listen. Our Facebook Live panel discussion. It's the final episode of our series, The Burn Scar. Catch it in your downloads on February 7th. I'm Melody Edwards. Noah Greenspan is our assistant producer. Ariel Lavery is our sound designer this season. Thanks also for help from McKenna Lipson and Charles Fournier. Our digital producer is Ryan Kelly. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. Do you have stories of surviving a natural disaster in the West or just want to suggest a story idea? Reach out to us at themodernwestpod at gmail.com. We're also on the social media platforms at Modern West Pod. If you love this show and care about this kind of storytelling, share it with a friend or leave us a review. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.